Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. All right, we're in Acts chapter 27. Okay, Acts 27. Got a lot to cover today. I have almost 20 pages of notes, and uh, we're, nah, I know there's going to be. A lot, I'm, I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to skip over whatever needs to be skipped. But, but I'm really excited about um, what God has for us today. And uh, so let's get right into it by by just reminding ourselves that Paul has been in prison for the last two years, and he, you know, he's got. From one direction, he's got the Jewish people making accusation uh, against against him concerning the tradition and the law. From the other direction, he's got the Roman Empire who are unwilling to let him free, even though he, you know, he hasn't done anything wrong. He's appealed unto Caesar, which is essentially the equivalent of appealing to the Supreme Court in our contemporary age. You know, he was a Roman citizen. And, uh, and he just said, hey, you know, rather than going from, through the rigmarole of dealing with you knuckleheads, uh, let's go to Rome and let's see what Caesar and the tribunal have to say about this. And maybe, maybe they'll do the right thing and set me free. And so we're at this moment in the story where Paul is actually going to get on a boat and head to Rome. Okay? And he's getting ready to leave. Now, before, that, uh, we, before we get into the story, I think it's really important to note that Paul was always supposed to go to Rome, right? We talked about this in previous sermons, is that, that God had for Paul on his agenda to get to Rome. God knew that, that Paul would be used mightily there. Uh, Paul did kind of drag his feet because of his desire to minister to the Jewish people, but he was always supposed to get to Rome, and he even knew that. He wrote about it a few years earlier in Romans chapter 1, verse 15. He says, So as much as in me is... I am ready to preach the gospel to you there at Rome also. And so Paul was carrying this conviction that he needed to get to Rome. He never thought he would get there this way, though, in bonds, you know. But uh, so we're going to see him going to Rome, and this is God's will for his life. And, you know, whenever there's God's will is upon a person, his calling is upon a person, there's always going to be resistance to that. And so as, as Paul heads to Rome, what we're going to see is Satan working against Paul to get there. And we're going to use this story to kind of paint a picture. Uh, We're going to talk about Paul's arduous journey to Rome. And by the time we get through chapter 27, we're going to see natural disasters, near-death experiences, and God's miraculous hand. People love Acts chapter 27. It's kind of exciting. After being, you know, several chapters of being kind of in, you know, in trials, and it's kind of slow. It's a little bit slower paced. The story picks up here. It gets more exciting for those of you who like action. But today we're going to talk about wind. We're going to talk about wind. And we're going to, go, going to look at, at wind in this story as a, as a picture type, as a, a metaphor for how the enemy wants to work in our lives to slow down the gospel and the mission that God wants to do through us. That's what we're going to do today. All right, so we're going to move real fast in the beginning because we've got to lay out the story But then we're going to focus near the end and and look at some serious application for our lives. Let's pray that the Lord would help me because I do sense, uh, I've sensed distraction all day. I I felt it down at the other building. And, uh, you know, again, Satan's always trying to push against what God wants to get done. And so we want to pray that God would protect us, protect our ears from the enemy, and that we could focus and hear what the Lord has for us today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I can, I can, uh, very, very plainly and confidently say that I need you today. And uh, Lord, I think about my study time and the way the past week has gone and even just the way this morning has gone. Um, There's a lot of time where I doubt myself and I think, Lord, can I even communicate the things that you want me to communicate? I don't deserve the opportunity and, uh, and Lord, I, and all the studying, I, it's like a mountain of information. You've given me so much. And so, Lord, I pray that even as I preach, you would reveal to me and to my heart what it is that I need to learn. I, I need you personally today. I need your spirit to work in my life. And, Lord, I would ask very humbly that you would use me to work uh, in the lives of these people as well. I love them so much. You know my heart towards them. 
And, uh, and I don't, I don't want to be the one that wastes our time today uh, with opinions or, uh, you know, rambling thoughts. Um, God, I pray that, that, that you would get to the heart of the matter and that you would choose to use me today. And so, Lord, be with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 27, verse 1, we're going to start reading. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. Okay, so we've got this guy named Julius, and he's got this group of guys called the Italian band. And this group, this group was likely... Uh, commissioned guards, men that belonged to Caesar, okay? Their primary objective was that they were commissioned to go get Paul, go retrieve Paul, and bring him back to Rome. So these are elite soldiers uh, tasked by Caesar himself to go get some work done. And so they head to Caesarea to go pick up Paul. And the story continues on. And one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. Okay, so now we've got, we've got our characters for our story. So here we hear Luke. Luke is our author in Acts. He starts referring in the plural once again. And so over the last few chapters, we've seen that Luke is not really including himself much in the story. He's more painting a picture of what's been going on with Paul. But see, here he uses the term us. And what he's saying is that now he's been joined back to Paul. Now, Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, he had special rights. He was allowed to have Luke come with him on this journey to, uh, to Rome. And that would be because Luke was also a physician, and he was the personal physician of Paul. Okay, I'm, I feel like I'm really lucky, and that I also have a personal physician. His name is Chris Best. <laughs> the other day I went to his office and I said, hey, my eczema is acting up. Could you prescribe a cream for me? And he did. <laughs> right there on the spot. He knew the name of what I needed, and he wrote me a prescription. It's good. It's good to have a personal physician, isn't it? It's even better to have a personal physician that works for our missions team and is our missions pastor because the insight and the provision that he can give to our missions ministry is exceptional. God has done that for us uh, just the way he did that for Paul. Also, it mentions Aristarchus here in our story. Aristarchus is mentioned in Acts chapter 19 as a friend of Paul who got caught up in the riots in Ephesus. Remember those riots in Ephesus? They grabbed Aristarchus and they like dragged him out into the street. Uh, so Aristarchus is, is no jo joke. He's also mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 as Paul's fellow prisoner. Now how he, he came to be a prisoner, we don't know. But we know for a fact that this guy Aristarchus is a comrade with Paul. We all need comrades just like Aristarchus. Uh, verse 3. And the next day we touched at Sidon. I think there's a map. There may be a map in here. I threw a few, the map in here a few times. So you can see there's Caesarea. That's where they're taken off from. All right. By the time we finish today, we'll be over there in Crete. We're going we're gonna to travel across uh, the Mediterranean there. So Sidon, and then they're going to head to Murrah uh, here in a moment. And the next day, we touched at Sidon. And Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh him. And so... They stop here in Sidon. It's been a day's journey. I, I don't know about you. I've never traveled on the ocean like this. But history would tell us that it wasn't very comfortable. Okay? Uh, especially this is a cargo ship that they're on. And, and this cargo ship would have probably carried a lot of other stuff. It would have been tight. It would have been cramped. Um, I'd like to see Eric on a boat for 24 hours like that. What would, what would he, he be looking for immediately for a shower, a barber perhaps? A crisp dinner jacket, <laughs> right? Some, some pants with a cuff and a crease. And the rich aroma of some expensive cologne. Yeah, see? So, but Paul needed to be refreshed, and so they, after a 24-hour trip, they stop off here. And Julius, uh, who, who this, this leader of this band allowed him to go to his friend's house, hang out, get a meal, take a shower, um, you know, chill out for a minute, and then get back to their journey. And that's exactly what they do. In verse 4 it says, and when, he, and when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. 
If we can go back to the map for a second here. So what they're doing is they're traveling along the coastline of the Mediterranean. And you can imagine that, that you know, technology wasn't what it is now. There was no GPS systems, right? And so they're traveling along the coastline very intentionally, right? Because if there is a storm or if there is a problem, they're not too far from the shoreline. They can dock off somewhere and they can, they can rest. And so they're traveling along the coast because that's the the safest thing to do. Now, this space where, where it says Cilicia, that's modern-day Turkey. And that space between Cilicia and Cyprus there would have provided them some protection from the winds, the winds picking up across the Mediterranean, especially this time of year. Uh, it's coming into the winter months. They just finished uh, the, the fasting time of the season, right? They're fasting, which means it's the Day of Atonement, right, for the Jewish people. And that means they're coming into September or October and they're traveling there uh, along the coastline for safety and to be blocked from some of those heavy winds that would be picking up. And that's called the, the, uh, the Cilicia Sea, is that strait between Cilicia and Cyprus. And so now you've got the geography down. Now it says here that we're discovering in this portion of the passage is that the winds were contrary. They were contrary. And so from this moment in our message, the wind is going to become our main character of our story now, not too long ago, we talked about winds when we did the, uh, the Jonah series, right? The, the series we called Set Us Apart, right? And, or Set Us Free, sorry. I don't even remember the, the name of the series that I preached. Set Us Free was the name of the series, and we were in, in Jonah, and we had a, a storm in that story as well, if you remember. A great wind was in the story of Jonah as well. So we talked a lot about wind. We're going to talk about wind a little bit now as well. Wind is all throughout Scripture, and I spent a, a bunch of time this weekend Looking at wind in Scripture, there's a lot to say. I'm not going to be able to say it all. You can, you can do that study yourself. But we're going to cover the major things real quick to get some context. So when we look at wind in Scripture, we see God's absolute control over creation. All right? Um, the Bible says so much about wind, uh, but, the, but wind is subject to God himself. He controls it as he controls very nature itself. And so when he speaks, it moves. And we see in Scripture, we see God speak, and then we see wind happen. All right? He, it's at his very command. And it's so much so that the Bible even talks about how God rides on the wings of wind, which I don't understand. I studied, I spent a bunch of time studying, and I need to spend more time looking at that. But God himself rides on the wings of wind, right? Uh, um, in the last service, Sam mentioned Ezekiel's wheel, right? Like, which is like God's you know, the Pope has his own vehicle, right? So he's got his special funny car. But God has one too. It's like a spaceship with two wheels that somehow ellipse each other in and out, in and out. It's like a, a spacecraft from, from heaven. But we also know that God rides on the wings of wind as well. And, 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 and when he speaks, creation itself obeys him. That's so amazing. It's so important for me to remember that because that's, that's how I remember that God is bigger than me. But when we study wind in the Bible, we also see that God's, uh, God has a purpose for wind in the life of his believers. Okay? And so sometimes wind brings judgment. It brings judgment into the life of people. Okay? An example of that is in Exodus chapter 10 when we see that the wind brought the locusts, right? You guys are familiar with this story, right? Uh, God wants to deliver his people Israel out of Egypt. And God is proving that out. And as he's trying to do that separating work, there's a series of plagues that come upon Pharaoh and his house and upon Egypt. And a wind brings in these locusts that basically just destroy the landscape, right? There's this, there's this pestilence of locusts. And a wind delivers that. Now, when we talk about a wind, if you look at the east wind, if, you're, if you're the type of person that likes to take notes, this is your opportunity to take down notes and look at this later. When you look at an east wind, every time the east wind shows up, 20 times in Scripture, an east wind, and it's always bringing judgment. In every instance, it brings judgment. So that's just, you know, that's a side note. But, but so wind does bring judgment, brings judgment into our lives. We refer to this as a storm of consequence Sometimes, uh, you know, a storm will come into our life 
as the result of, of sin or some sort of area in our life that's aberrant or irregular uh, with God's word. We, don't, we live you know, outside of the accordance of the Lord. And when that happens, we're inviting God's judgment into our life. And he's liable to bring a storm to wake us up and to shake us awake, just like he did with Jonah. Now, sometimes wind brings grace. Okay, so we can also see wind in Scripture bringing grace upon God's people, like when God sent quail to Israel in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 11. Okay, so if you fast forward in our story about Israel and the exodus of God's people out of Egypt, you see the people are out in the wilderness and they're hungry. Okay, and they're hungry. And so God makes provision for the people. He extends grace to them. And in Numbers 11, we see a wind bring in this quail so that the people have something to eat. So we, what we learn is that winds can be cleansing and purifying and winds can destroy and bring heartache. But they always have a purpose for God's people. Always. We see God's purpose further typified in the idea that the Holy Spirit is pictured in the power and the mystery of the wind. And God uses this this idea of the wind to also explain to us the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. In John chapter 3, you guys know this story, right? About Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's this this high-ranking official in the temple. He comes to Jesus by night in hiding. He wants to learn more about the teachings that Jesus has been teaching in public. And so he comes to him and he says, Hey, Master Rabbi, would you teach me the things that you're talking about? And Jesus answers to him and says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And we know from John chapter 3 and from being able to look at it as believers, we can look back at that chapter and say, what, what Christ is referring to here is salvation. And he's saying that a person was, is, is very naturally born into this world physically, right? We have a life, we're born into this world, but what we need is a rebirth because of sin, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that a curse is passed upon every single generation. We look at those little babies getting dedicated this morning, and we think about how wonderful and beautiful they are. And to see, like, to see Blake and, and Julie and, and Gabrielle and Jorge with their babies is extra special. It's so weird seeing Blake with a baby in his hands, right, just bouncing that baby around. Man, those little babies are wicked sinners. They're, they're evil and they're wicked, okay? And they seem very, very cute. But, but, but the thing that, that even right now that Gabrielle and Julie are discovering is that there is a sin nature in those little creatures. And they're going to throw fits. And they're going to, they're you know, act covetous. And they're going to make demands, and pretty soon they're going to be lying, okay? And that's just in our nature. That sin nature was passed upon us. And what we really need, okay, is we need salvation through rebirth in the Spirit and the the baptism of the Spirit of God. And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be born again, a new person, born of Spirit. So the physical birth is that, that water birth, Right, that's referring to here, and Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth, but he's explaining this, and Nicodemus is not getting it. Right? He doesn't even like the idea, right? It's it's strange to him. He says something to the effect of like, I'm supposed to be born again. I've got to what does that mean? I've got to I don't think my mother will approve of that process. Right? It's confusing to him. And so Jesus goes on and continues to explain what he's talking about. And he does that by by addressing the spirit. He talks more about the spirit and what the spirit of the living God can do inside the life of a person who is reborn. In verse 8 of John chapter 3, he says, The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof. In other words, we see the evidence of the wind. We see its power. We see it pushing and blowing trees back and forth. We can hear it blowing through the the trees. There's evidence all around us of the invisible. You can't see the wind, right? Right? It's, It's clear. It's transparent. You can't actually see it, but you see the evidence of it all around you. So the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. In other words, the power of the Spirit in our life moves us. We can't see the Spirit, but we know the evidence of the Spirit as believers by the conviction and the power and the movement and the provocation of the Spirit in our life. Does that make sense? 
Now, now God goes on with this illustration in Acts chapter 2. We see a very real example of the power of the Spirit. And God describes for us in Acts chapter 2 this rushing of the wind of the Spirit. So Acts 2 verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And we know how the story goes. When the Holy Spirit shows up, there's transformation in the life of the believers. And these believers are now empowered to go out into the streets and to preach the gospel. Something very unique was happening, but it's described to us as a rushing wind. When the Spirit came into that upper room and filled that place, it was as a rushing wind blowing in. Right? Have you ever opened a door in your house on a windy day and then the wind just kind of comes in and you, you guys know what I'm talking about? And it kind of blows things around and if the windows are open the other day, the windows were open as we went to sleep. That's one of the best things in the fall, right? Is to be able to open the windows again and let the cold air come in and save some money on that awful you know, uh, cooling bill, that AC bill that you've been paying for. And the wind comes in, but sometimes that wind picks up and the shades start blowing and and even right now, we could hear the rain outside, right? And it blows in and it creates a stir. And the Spirit of God did that. Now, why does God describe the Spirit that way? Why is the Spirit described this way? It's like a wind. Because the Spirit is just like the wind. It's powerful. And it rushes into to our lives and carry us, carries us into the will of God. And it causes us to be in accordance with the Lord. Right? When the wind is blowing on a day, there's a direction that the wind wants you to go. Right? Um, Sam and some folks, Sam Miles went on a bike ride this week. Right? And one of the first things that they do is they figure out which direction the wind is going because you'd much rather bicycle, right, with the wind provoking you a particular direction. You don't want to drive into the headwinds, right? You don't want to ride into the headwinds because that'll slow you down and make you have to do more work. We want the Spirit of the Lord to direct us and guide us wherever we should go. The Spirit, like the, the wind moving a sail, right? Like the wind that moves the sail of a boat is intended to move us to believe and live according to God's word. Um, I, hadn't, I hadn't watched Tommy Boy in probably over 20 years, but Eva a couple days ago talked me into watching it. And, uh, and you, when you're old, you don't watch a movie all at once. You fall asleep halfway through a movie, and then what you do is you pick up the rest of the movie on a different night. And so we actually finished Tommy Boy last night, and one of the, you know, one of the, the sweet... Because there's not much redeeming about this movie. It's terrible, by the way. <laughs> It's an absolutely terrible movie. I don't think I laughed through it at all. I like Chris Farley, but I can't tell you why, right? I can't tell you why. I want to watch him. I want to see him acting stupid, but I don't laugh at anything he does. I'm just like, oh, he's just sweet, right? He's just like a sweet, big, fat guy, you know. But uh, one of the things in the story, I'm slowing myself down big time here. We're not, we're not ever going to get to what I need to get to. But he's, he's on the boat, right, in the middle of the lake, and there's no wind. And then he... He, I don't, he, like, prays to his father. His dad's dead. And he's like, Dad, if you could just give me some wind, you know. And then his dad shows up, and the wind blows, and the sail picks up, and it's, like, really stupid. <laughs> it's supposed to be endearing, but as believers, you're like, what? It's like, he's praying to his dad. What is going on here? This is ridiculous. Right? But the idea that, that wind moves the sail of the boat is exactly what we're talking about because it's that kind of power that we need in our life. We need the Spirit to guide us everywhere that we go. Psalms 148, uh, 148.8 says, The fire and, uh, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. I love that. Super straightforward. And what this is saying is that God uses all of these natural things to fulfill his very words. And God wants to do that in our life as well. He wants to use the spirit to fulfill his word in our lives. The wind should provoke us to faith. Now, in our story today, all right, what we're going to see is that wind is also used by Satan. Okay, so there's also a picture here of how wind is also a picture in Scripture of how Satan wants to work against us in the mission. And that's what we have in our story today. We have a storm that's a picture of our opposition, Satan's opposition against the mission of God in our lives. And we see the wind represent the trials and the temptations that Satan wants to bring into your life in order to prevent you from moving forward in God's mission. So, God loves to illustrate his truths, and so just like wind illustrates for us 
different things like trial and opposition. There's other pictures here in our story. All right, there's a lot happening here that's, that's a picture type for us. And, um, and so one of those things is that the sea itself represents humanity. Okay, we can know that, right? It represents humanity, and we know that because God has called every believer to go out into the sea and fish for men. All right, the sea is full of fish. And it's the responsibility of the believer, the mission-minded believer, to go out into the sea and to go minister the gospel that they might win fish. Okay? And so the sea is like humanity, and the fish are like people, and the boat, the boat is like Kaya. The boat is like the, the, the strategy or the mechanism by which we go out and we minister the gospel to people. It's like Midtown Baptist Temple is the ship. And the wind in our story today is the opposition of Satan. Psalm 107.23 says, They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth, raiseth the stormy wind, which lift, lifteth up the waves thereof. And so what we see here is that these guys, they, when people go out into the sea, God intends for people on the sea to see his creation and to see his works and to, and to gain some sort of knowledge about him. So God does work in picture types. And in our story, we're going to see Paul face four aspects of Satan's attack on the mission. That's what we're going to see. So the very first wind that we're going to look at, or one aspect of the wind, if you will, is the contrary wind. Verse 4, And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Mura, a city of Lycia, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. Okay, and I believe, is the map there? If not, there you go. So you can see where they've passed, and they land over here in Lycia, right, at that port city of Murrah, and they, they board a new ship, okay, that's going to take them on the rest of their journey. God wanted Paul in Rome, right? We already covered that, right? God wanted Paul in Rome. Paul wanted to be in Rome. And all the men on that ship wanted to get to Rome. It was their primary objective. Everybody involved wants to get to Rome. And yet the wind was contrary. So just as they launched out from Cyrus, they discover that the winds are going to fight against them. And contrary means, the word contrary means adversarial or oppositionary. And in the previous chapter, Paul uses this exact same word, contrary, when talking to Agrippa. Remember, he's describing himself as before he was saved. Paul says, when I, when I was lost, I was working contrary to the name of God. The name of Jesus Christ. My life was given to being contrary to the name of God. And this wind is going to work a contrary work. It's going to go against the mission. It's going to go against what God wants to do in getting Paul to Rome. And we have a contrarian in our lives as well. Satan is that contrary force that works against the mission of God. He seeks to blow winds that discourage and cause you to change course. Or cease at your objective. The objective, of course, being to go and to catch fish, right? He wants to work against that mission in our lives. So the very first thing that we see here is key point number one. The enemy's wind is warning us to turn back. Satan's warning you right off the bat. He sends a contrary wind working against us. It's a headwind. To slow us down. And what he's doing is he's, he's drawing a line in the sand and he's telling you, hey, you should probably reconsider. You should probably reconsider the mission of God in your life. You should probably think twice about going down that road. You should probably think twice about going and evangelizing tonight. You should probably think twice about attending that Bible study. You should probably think twice about planting a church in Vietnam. You should think twice about that. And I know for a fact that the, the, the team that is going to Saigon has already felt the contrary winds. They see the evidence of Satan warning them to turn back because if they go that way, I'm going to make it hard for you. I'm going to make it difficult for you. Now let's think about our own lives for a second here for a minute. Look, look, how, God, look how far God has brought you personally as a believer. 
Think about where you were a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. Think about where God has brought you, what what he's brought you out of, how he's changed your life. Look at all that he's done. Now, the question for you is this. Do you know what it would take to turn you back again? What contrary wind could come into your life? What what, what sort of oppositionary work would it take for you to turn back? Now, all of us have some sort of thing, don't we? Like, if we're really honest with ourselves, there's something, there's something that would cause us to stumble and turn back. In our flesh, absent the power of the Holy Spirit and a determination to yield and surrender our lives to the Lord, every one of us is capable of turning back and going back, right, right back where we were. And the worst part about it is if you go back, you don't go back the same. You go back fully aware of what God can do in the life of a believer, which is way, 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 way worse. See, the more you love the Lord the more obsessed with the mission that you become. But there will never be a time in your mission-filled life that you will not, from time to time, face contrary winds. And you're going to ask yourself questions, or Satan is going to whisper questions into your ear like, should you have really signed up for discipleship? Should you have really done that? Is the timing really right? Maybe that was too much to commit to this early on in your walk. Should you have broken up with your boyfriend or girlfriend or or stopped hanging out with your old friends? Should you have really done that? Maybe that was a little bit harsh. Maybe maybe it would be wise for you to just chill out for a second and stop acting so radical. It's, It's just been too much too fast. Should you really go to that retreat? I mean, it's going to cost you 145 bucks. It's going to cost you time. You're going to have to ask off work. Can you really afford to do that? On your way home from the retreat, did, did you really hear from God? I mean, maybe that was some other voice. I mean, that's whatever God you think God was asking you to do, you know, maybe all it takes is a little bit, you know, maybe you just need to binge Seinfeld for another few hours and, and just forget about Forget about that, right? Maybe helping with that church plant wasn't such a good idea. Hey, believer, listen to me. You better believe 100% that every day in Tampa and Boston, Satan is whispering that very thing to the believers that are involved in, that, in those church plants. Maybe this was too much. Maybe this was a bad idea. Maybe if we just went back to Kansas City and regrouped and started over, we could just start fresh, and they just, we just forget the calling in our life, and, and we forget where God has brought us to. And there, is a, there are contrary words. There are contrary winds that blow into your life that are warning you not to proceed. And there will never be a time in your life where those voices or those winds completely subside. Satan is going to always try to convince you that you ought to quit. Now, there's another, there's another aspect to the wind. Okay? It's also relentless. It's, it's not suffering. It's, it's a relentless wind. Verse 7. And when he had sailed slowly many days... Okay? So they have to move slow because the wind is going against them. But they are proceeding... And scarce were come over against Snidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed unto Crete. So Crete is the, is the largest island in the Aegean Sea. I don't know if there's a picture. Is there another picture? I, I, I sprinkled the pictures in here. Is it the next slide? There it is. So you can see Crete over here. That's, that's where they're headed, right, is to Crete. It's the largest island in the Mediterranean. That's where they're headed. And what they're going to do, one of the things you need to know is that there's a strong northwest wind through this time of year that comes down like this from the Aegean down through Snidus and into the very region that they're at. All right? So they know that this time of year, it's going to be tough travel, but they're still doing it. And it it continues on. Over against Salmon and hardly passing it came, uh, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. So you can see that on the map again. If you can go back just for a second. 
you can see that they landed there at the Fair Havens, the Fair Havens. Now, Fair Havens is a bay that's two kilometers west of Lycia. Sheltered by small islands, it would be the perfect protection from the strong winds. But it wasn't convenient as they had thought it would be, right? In the winter months, they discover that this particular place wasn't really that convenient. It didn't really meet all of their needs. you got a group of soldiers. You know how soldiers act, right? They're trying to go somewhere where the honeys are, right? If they're going to winter somewhere, right, they've got to be somewhere where there's some babes and beer, right? That's what they're looking for. They're looking to go clubbing. They don't want to stay in some lame, small, podunk, no, nobody place, right? And so they're, 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 they're restless in the decision to stay there. Verse 9, it says, Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already passed, all right? So here, we, again, we see that the, 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 the fast has, has passed, the day of atonement has already passed, and, it's, and it's, the winter months are setting in, and the winds are really strong. It says, Paul admonished them. And said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with, be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, and ship, but also of our lives. Our lives will be at risk. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. Okay, never, that's never a good idea. Okay, you don't listen, you don't listen. It's never a good idea to listen to the guy, the captain of the boat, over the prophet of God. It's just not a good idea, okay? And because the haven was not commodious, that's what that word means, it's not accommodating to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenix and there to winter, which is in haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. So there's a place called Phoenix that would have been a better place for them to stay. Why? Because the haven was not commodious to winter in. It wasn't going to be enjoyable. It wasn't going to be comfortable. This means that the fair havens weren't accommodating. It wasn't, it wasn't an enjoyable place to be. There wasn't enough entertainment for them there. Paul hated this idea of leaving the fair havens. He hated it and told them that they'd be risking their very lives if they left. Now, let's, this, is, this is what I want you to get. First of all, here we have a wind that is not suffering. It's not suffering, which simply means it wasn't willing to let up, right? The hope was obviously, okay, we got some winds, the contrary winds, they're going to blow for a little bit, but you know, that, that'll eventually let up, won't it? But they wouldn't. They wouldn't relent. They wouldn't give up. And I want you to know something. Satan, your enemy, will not give up either. Okay, now, now listen to me. We're always chasing a comfortable place of respite, we're always looking for ways of making our faith easier, aren't we? Right? That's what American Christianity is all about. We're really good at making our faith less radical and making it more accommodating. Right? Because we want, to, we want a commodious place to winter in. And we do that as a direct result of the fact that the winds are so relentless. They won't let up. And we know that radical living is going to produce more and more fervor in our enemy. And in fact... The closer that Paul gets to his mission of Rome, the greater the winds are that pick up. And that will be true in your life as well. The closer you get to the objectives that God has for you in your life and the mission and the calling that he's called you to specifically, the greater the winds will be and the more relentless the enemy will be in your life. And you've got to be fully aware of that. And the thing that you can't afford to do is say, Oh, I just need to find a more accommodating place to, to rest myself. The fair havens, they're not good enough for me. Now, I want to point something out to you that I think is really, really important. And that is that the, the fair havens essentially means a good and safe place. A good and a safe place. God had brought them to the fair havens to keep them secure. It was a place of his comfort, of his safety, but it wasn't good enough for them. It wasn't entertaining enough. It didn't fulfill all their needs, their desires. It's so, that's so often us, isn't it? 
We hate the place that God has us in. And what he's calling us to is to lean into him for security. And so often what we want to do is go find a place that's more accommodating. Find a place that's more entertaining. I don't want to give up my faith. I want to call myself a Christian. God, I still want to be a part of your mission. But if I'm going to do it, I want to do it from a safe distance. From a place that's going to be more enjoyable, more entertaining, less gritty, less tough, less less, less difficult. This has just been really, God, this has been so tough on us. You know, Satan has been so rough on me. And all I want is just a season to myself. And if I'm going to winter anywhere, I'm going to winter it safe and secure, under my blankets, watching reruns on, you know, whatever it is, right? That's what I want to do. It doesn't mean I'm quitting. It just means I want to do it from a safe and enjoyable distance. Psalm 107, 28 says of our Lord, Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. And I don't know if you've noticed, but haven sounds a lot like heaven. One day we will have a haven that is safe and secure for eternity. And we won't have to deal with all of this enemy and, and, the, and the hatred of the world and the difficulties of this life and the, and the complications of our flesh. And there's, gonna, there's coming a haven that's going to protect us forever and bring absolute joy all the time. But in the meantime, the Lord is drawing us into a haven even now. We can have our haven in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Psalm 119, 117 says. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. And I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. See, Jesus Christ is our safe place. Now, he hasn't promised us that the winds will stop blowing. But what he has said to us is that he will hold us, he will hold us through the storm. He will keep us through the storm. He will protect us and love us and adore us and keep us from the enemy through the storm. The storm's coming. Actually, the promise is that suffering will be on your doorstep, believer. If you're going to live a mission-minded life, the storm will be ever-present. And what we need is the security of the fair havens, not the convenience of Phoenix. By the way, Phoenix means palm trees, and the first mention of palm trees in the Word of God is in association with judgment, just FYI. So the fair haven is what we want. It shelters us from that relentless wind. And we can harbor our lives in the security of God's mercy and grace. 2 Corinthians 1.7 says, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. I love that. I love that. Because that word console is very similar to the idea of of. They wanted a commodious place to go. But what God's saying is, I, in the suffering, I provide you with all the consolation that you need. It might not be all the accommodations that you want, right? It, 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 might, it might not be the bed and breakfast that you were looking for, but it's all the consolation that you'll ever need. And I'm so thankful for those promises. And so many of us are looking for a better place to port. That brings us to key point number two. Don't let the enemy's win cause you to grow discontent. Discontent with what God's given you. See, the solution here, the solution is to do just like Moses did. And to choose the harder path, the more difficult way, rather than seek short-term seasonal pleasure. You know, Moses had it real good just hanging out in Egypt, right? He lived with Pharaoh. He lived in the palace. Everything was awesome. But he chose a harder but right path because he refused to live in sin. Hebrews 11.25 says this, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of life for a season. And it is just a season, isn't it? It's just a season. Phoenix would just be a season. 
the things that you're looking for, the desires of your flesh, the passions that you're chasing after, all of those things, those sinful little pleasures that you want to invite into your life, they're only good for a season. And then comes judgment. Then comes destruction. There is no better port than the fair havens. There's no better place to harbor than the safety of the arms of Jesus Christ. That brings us to this third aspect of the wind, and that's the subtle winds. Ooh, the subtle winds. The subtle winds are perhaps the worst. Verse 13. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, ah, loosing thence, they sailed close to Crete. So despite Paul's warning, they leave the fair havens and they go. And as they go, they face a very gentle south wind. Study the south in scripture. There's something to that too. Okay? But they they feel this gentle breeze and everything seems to be good. The wind blew softly. And they're saying to themselves, hey, we made the right decision, guys. See, Paul had no idea what he was talking about. Everything's cool. We're headed the right direction. We'll be in Phoenix in no time. It's not even a day's travel, right? That's not how it worked out. And that leads us to key point number three. Don't let the enemy's wind lull you into a false sense of security. See, everyone likes a cool breeze on a warm day. And in this case, it would have been a warm breeze on a cool day, but let's, we won't split hairs. Everybody likes that. It's relaxing. It's unassuming, Right? One of my favorite things to do in the springtime is I got a hammock in my backyard, and when there's a cool spring breeze, I like to go out, I like to lay in the hammock, I like to rest. That's what you do when you're my age. So you lay in hammocks, right? Uh, and it's nice. Have you ever noticed, though, about those gentle breezes? Have you ever noticed how calm the air becomes before a tornado hits? Right? The, the wind feels... You feel it for a second, it feels weird. It's like, it's like either a really warm wind or a cold wind that seems like out of place. You're like, this is kind of nice, I think. And then it goes completely silent, and then your house is gone. <laughs> but isn't that the way that the enemy works? Before he, his full onslaught comes, he wants to lull you to sleep with a, with a gentle south wind. He wants, he wants you to drop your guard. He wants you to convince yourself that you're not in danger. And so often we fall for these tricks because our enemy is subtle. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, uh, through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's how all corruption takes place, through subtlety. A little here, a little there, a gentle wind. We don't even know what's happening. And pretty soon... Satan has us, and he's stolen our minds away. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says, and, and, and no marvel, for Satan himself has transformed into an angel of light. So then the call for us, is to, for every believer, is to beware. Beware of dropping your guard. See, when ministry seems really good and God is beginning to use you, you better be careful. When the Bible study has grown and people are growing, when you, when you feel liberated and free in ministry, you know, so I, I felt and sensed today that there was a lot of distraction. You know why that doesn't bother me? Because I know where the distraction is, God is. I know that. And so many of us, when things are happening and things are good and we feel liberated and free, we drop our guards supposing that there's no enemy to attack what God's, uh, what God's done in your life. When things seem the most steady or prepared, Satan is ready to exploit you the moment you become careless in your walk with the Lord. When you make excuses for not pursuing the joy of Jesus Christ or knowing him better, the moment where you think that you can coast for a minute, that is when the attack comes. When fair haven isn't what motivates you, then your perspective on Christ, uh, uh, and your per- perspective on Christianity, then your perspective on Christianity will become there's got to be something better somewhere else. And I want to warn you against that. Now that leads us to this fourth wind, and that's a prevailing wind. It's a prevailing wind. It's a tempestuous wind. So verse fourteen says, 
But not long after these arose against it a a tempestuous wind. I love that. I love that word, tempestuous. It's a good word. Saying that actually just gives me an opportunity to take a drink. So you can meditate on how wonderful a word. And this wind was called Euroclidon. You know how they name hurricanes, right? Right? You've never... There's, all, there's always a name. I can't even keep track. The only one I know is El Nino. El Nino is the only one I can remember. That one's burned in my mind. Katrina was a big one, wasn't it? Katrina. They're always like, you know, very exotic names. El Nino. Okay? I don't, I don't know. So this one's called Euroclidon. And verse 15 says, And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into it the wind, we let her drive. <clears throat> and so here we have a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon. And when the ship could no longer control the wind, it simply just took over. It prevailed over them. And they simply let the ship be driven about wherever it would go. It just threw them around. It did whatever it wanted. The wind had complete control at this point, and that leads us to key point four. The enemy's wind wants full control over your life. That's what, he, that's what he wants. That's what Satan wants, is for you to throw up your hands and let his, let, let, let his purpose control who you are. He wants you to surrender to him. Now, Christ wants you to surrender to him. Christ wants you your surrender. He wants your yielding, Right? And that yielding was back at the fair haven, was in his presence. But the enemy wants you to yield as well. He wants you to give up. He wants you to throw your hands up. And many of us recognize that we've surrendered to the winds of this world. Even right now, right now in this room, you know that you've done it. We no longer have control over our situations. And the world and our fleshly desires and Satan, they've prevailed against us. And we've become double-minded. James 1.6 says, But let him ask in faith, not wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let that not, not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And many of us are double-minded. We're double-minded. We've got two different lives that we live, and sometimes they bleed over into each other, and sometimes they're real tidy and compartmentalized, but we live these different lives. But listen to me, it's only a matter of time before the prevailing winds overcome you completely, and you lose absolute control, and you give over to Satan. I've seen it over and over again in ministry. And you're, you're, you're saying to yourself, you're curious as a Christian why you don't have any fruit in your life. Why God isn't using you? Why you lack peace? It's because you're double-minded. Ecclesiastes 11.4 says, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. In other words, the moment that you turn your attention to the wind and you focus on the wind, think Peter walking on the water for a second. The moment that you turn your attention to the wind and it becomes your preoccupation, is the moment that you, that you will stop having fruit. I mean, that's what it says. He that observeth the wind shall not sow. It means that you won't be about your father's business anymore. You won't be about doing the work of God. You won't go about sowing the seed of the word into the lives of other people because you're too preoccupied with what the wind is doing, and it is controlling you. It's controlling you. And many of you have given your attention to the wind, And now your life is hopeless. You feel hopeless, and you're outside of the blessing of the Lord. Now listen to me. As we close, this is what I want to point out. The only hope for you, if you didn't pour at Fair Haven, the only hope for you in facing the tempestuous winds that want to consume your life is to focus on the promises of Jesus Christ and the rest that you find in him. Turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. 
I love this story. So you're going to have to bear with me because I'm going to probably lose it. And the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them. Okay, this is Jesus is with his disciples. They've been preaching all day. And it's time for them to have a moment of rest out on the water. And they're going to go and they're going to travel. They're going to pass over to the other side. It says, let us pass over unto the, uh, unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And they were also with, one, uh, with other little ships. There's other little ships around them. And there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. It was beginning to take on water. And he, being Jesus, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Complete peace. I mean, I, I kind of really, I like thinking about Jesus in a pillow. You know, it just seems sweet, like a little baby sleeping. You know, Jesus in his pillow. I wonder if it was like an ergonomic pillow, if Jesus required, you know, or if it was like feather pillow, what, what kind of pillow Jesus would prefer. It was probably just a bunch of cloth. And so he's down there sleeping because he's not concerned with the wind. Jesus is the only one that's not concerned with wind, by the way. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They're pleading with him. They're, they think that Jesus has forgotten them. And he arose. Immediately, just stood up and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. See, their fear changed in a moment. The fear of the wind, it subsided, didn't it? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, too many of us have left the fair havens. And too many of us have forgotten the love of Jesus Christ. And too many of us have questioned whether or not God has forgotten us. Do you not care for us? Are you just going to let us perish? You're going to let us die out here? Listen to me. Christ has never forgotten you once. You are the forgetful one. You are the one who turns your attention to the wind when you should be sowing. You are the one that refuses to wake up early in the morning and spend time with Christ. You are the one that says, that says, listen to me, I've done everything right, Lord. Why isn't it working? And you lie to yourself because you presuppose that religion is like relationship, and it's not. That you being here in this room right now somehow brings you closer to the Lord, and it doesn't. Just being in the ship isn't good enough. You are called to be a fisher of men. And when the Lord asks you to port in his fair havens, you don't neglect that work. He wants a relationship with you. And when you neglect that, and when you throw that away, and you focus your attention on the wind, you will suffer the repercussions of that. And we're going to look at that next week. Go ahead, worship team, come on up. We're going to pray. There are going to be counselors up here. Okay, so come on up. And I want to lead us in an invitation, okay? This is what we do. We always do this at the end of services. We have an invitation. And the leaders in the ministry, come on up, guys. And so this is what we're doing today. If you have turned your eyes away from the Lord and set your eyes on the wind, and you've forgotten the power of Jesus Christ in your life, if you've forgotten what it means to be in his respite and his care, and you focus your attention on other things, things more accommodating, if you will, then it's time to repent of that. And, you, and listen to me. I'm saying even if in the last 48 hours you've forgotten Christ, it's worth coming and repenting. Yes. 
If you recognize that there's aspects of your life that you feel completely out of control of, you've got some sort of addiction, some sort of thing that you've been hiding, something that's not right, come forward. Confess that before the Lord. And I promise you that Jesus will arise in a moment and rebuke the wind on your behalf. Now, I'm not promising you that the suffering will stop or that your consequences for your life will just disappear. What I'm saying to you is that the winds cannot prevail against you. They will not own you. That is the power and the authority of knowing Jesus Christ and loving him with everything that you have. I believe that. So the invitation is come and claim it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we adore you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how much you care and and how much you're concerned with who we are. And Lord, forgive us. Forgive us as we go out into the sea and we we were convinced that we're being mission-minded and that we're following you. Forgive us of the fact that so often we refuse to believe you for your promises. You said go to the other side. And then we convinced ourselves that that was impossible. That the wind was too great. And we've made excuses. And we've justified sin. And Lord, I just ask that you would call us out of that, that we might turn to you again and seek you for your help and for your guidance and for your friendship. Lord, help those in this room today. Let them hear your word and let them, let them respond, all of us. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.